and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. As governments in China, Russia, Iran, and other countries look to limit their citizens' access to information online, do we need a Tor version of sites like Wikipedia? In this week's podcast, we'll talk to Alec Muffet, an engineer who is trying to make that happen, and we'll discuss why Torifying websites and applications has more benefits than just anonymity. And Akamai released its State of Internet Security report last week for the third quarter 2017. We speak with senior editor and researcher Martin McKay about what that report found, including a big jump in application attacks and an update on the Mirai IoT botnet. But first, giants have tumbled in sectors like politics, the media, film, venture capital, technology, and the arts in recent weeks due largely to first-person testimony by victims of sexual assault and harassment. At the same time, the Me Too movement has helped to spread awareness about how prevalent sexual harassment and assault are in the workplace and in society. No surprise then to find that the information security community isn't immune. In fact, recent weeks have brought a renewed focus on sexual predation within the information security and information privacy communities. In our first segment for this week's podcast, we welcomed Genevieve Southwick into the Security Ledger Studios. Genevieve is the CEO and executive producer of two important security conferences, B-Sides Las Vegas and B-Sides Denver. She's had a front row seat in the security industry's struggles to address sexual harassment and other behavior that can make industry conferences and the industry in general hostile to women. Southwick told me that there's long been a whisper network within the community about sexual predators, but it has often been challenging to get victims who experience harassment to go public. In this interview, we talk with her about how her conferences and others are stepping up to try to address the problem of sexual harassment. Genevieve Southwick, Chief Executive Officer and Executive Producer for Security B-Sides Las Vegas and Security B-Sides Denver. Genevieve, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's great to have you. Clearly, uh, there is a cultural moment going on right now about sexual harassment, and this is an issue that is not a new one to the information security community. How does this issue touch the information security community, and how does it manifest itself within InfoSec? Unfortunately, sexual harassment is systemic in, in all industries. It's not InfoSec specific, but as far as conferences are concerned, there's always been a a very underground, if you will, whisper network when somebody's been assaulted or abused. We have a tendency to talk amongst ourselves, even if, if something hasn't been done on the legal end of things, because in a lot of these cases, it is very hard for the survivors to come forward and say something. One of the things that that is maybe unique about the information security community is just how male-dominated it is. I mean, something like 10% of working professionals' information security are women, 90% men. Um, So that would seem to create a particularly challenging um, uh, situation or or facts on the ground uh, around these issues, Um, just the the sheer kind of numbers – and, and how small a minority women are within the field, and therefore at these conferences, right? Sure. But when you think about it, there are many other industries that are the same way. You're going 
go to a mining conference and it's going to be 95% men and maybe 5% women. If you go to a medical conference, a dental conference, all those other industries also, any of the sciences at this point, you go to any of those conferences and again, it's going to be a majority of men and a minority of women who may not necessarily feel comfortable having their voices heard if something's happened because of the overwhelming male majority. We've seen a lot of obviously high profile politicians, media journalists and and media folks being called out for sometimes years long pattern of abuse. A couple uh, incidents that have popped up just within the information security community. One is around a researcher, a very well regarded researcher, Morgan Marquis Bois, who is, uh, I think, New Zealand uh, origin. A number of pieces written about his behavior and some incidents. Also, John Draper, the Captain Crunch, kind of a uh, seminal figure in the industry, uh, going back to the phone freaking days, has also been called out for a pattern uh, of behavior, particularly at conferences and and uh, directed towards young men, largely. Yes. Draper has actually been very well known in the industry for a long time for being a little bit more than just a, a slight creep. But again, it's always been Whisper Network. It's, uh, it's yeah. something that we, we've done what we could in order to keep him away from the young men when we could. But it's not like anybody can attach themselves to him to make sure that he's behaving so as a conference organizer, when you hear these things, generally, what's the playbook? I mean, how do you respond to them? When do you decide uh, this is a real threat versus uh, this is just idle chatter or gossip that's going around? Or do you just take all of them kind of at face value? Well, as a conference organizer, I have to take every incident seriously. If somebody comes to one of our security operations people or one of our operations folks and says, hey, this has happened to me, our first response is going to be to separate the parties, get both sides of the story as much as we can, make a justification for 99.9% of the time, I'd say we're going to ask the aggressor to leave, hands down. Uh, If somebody makes a, uh, a statement that something has happened to them, we are going to ask the aggressor to leave, and then if we can straighten it all out at another time, perhaps they'll be asked back in the future. But we, the first thing we want to do is make sure that all of our delegates, all of our participants are comfortable at the conference, and that can't happen if somebody's misbehaving. You've been doing B-Sides since, what, 10 years now? My first B-Sides Las Vegas was B-Sides 2, so that was 2010. So how have you seen the conversation change um, in that time? I mean, has this been a constant issue year in, year out, or, or have you seen more attention and hopefully progress on this uh, within the InfoSec community and and within the conference uh, scene as well? Well, with the other conference organizers that I speak to on a semi-regular basis, I think that there's a consensus between us all that this is uh, a serious issue. Most conferences at this point have established some sort of code of conduct. Besides Las Vegas certainly did. Uh, I think we put it into place in 2013, I want to say, right after I had taken over as CEO. Uh, that, I wish we could say that they weren't necessary, that people would just behave and do the right thing on their own. But yeah. the code of conduct really gives the, or, the organizers some backing to say, hey, you broke this rule. It's written right here. We're kicking you out, and this is why. For anything, it's the, it's the CYA clause for the organizers as much as it is 
to be a, a warning to the participant. And most of the conferences have adopted a code of conduct of some sort, even if it's just don't be an ass or be excellent to each other. It can be as simple as that. It doesn't have to be a, a, a long form filled with legalese that nobody's going to understand and everybody who does understand it is going to try to find the loopholes for. It can be as easy as, we don't like the way you're acting, we're going to ask you to leave. And we get to decide whether or not we like the way you're acting. What is the code of conduct at B-Sides, if you could kind of summarize it? What types of things do you ask of attendees? Be excellent to each other. If, if that isn't good enough, then don't be an ass or we'll kick your ass out. If what you're seeing done to another person isn't appropriate to be having to do to your sister, your brother, your mother, your father, your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, your niece, your nephew, then don't do it. If somebody tells you to stop, stop. And if you have a problem, find somebody in a red shirt which is the SecOps team, or somebody in a purple shirt, which are staff, and we will get our, we have a response team specifically designed for dealing with sensitive situations like this, and they'll come over and they'll take a report and they'll find out what you want to do for next steps. Do you want to press charges? Do you want to call the cops? How do you want to deal with I wonder, as part of the problem, you know, information security professionals spend so much of their time interacting with each other online and working online. Face-to-face interactions can be far and few between. And then you come together at these conferences and people kind of lose their shit. You know, I'm, I'm with my crew. I'm surrounded by other professionals like myself. And we're in Vegas or San Francisco or some other exotic location. And just uh, people go off the rails. Oh, sure. There's a lot of the, hey, we're, we're at a conference, we're going to cut loose, and I'm, I'm, a lot of people over-imbibe because they don't get out, get so, they're not in social situations yeah. on a regular enough basis to understand what their limits would have been. I, I wouldn't say so much about the hanging out with the crews. There, I'm sure there are some crews, but it's the individuals, you know, the, especially with DEF CON getting as big as it has, there are now a lot of what we call um, tourists showing up at DEF CON that aren't necessarily in the scene. They're just there because DEF CON's the thing to do in the summer. And a lot of those individuals may have poor social skills. There's a, we have a lot of that, in, especially in the infosec industry. There are a lot of people that are on the spectrum who don't necessarily read social cues well, don't interact with people on a regular basis outside of behind the keyboard. So face-to-face interactions can be difficult for them. They may not know the proper way to approach other individuals that they may be interested in. It's a hard call, and you have to read every situation individually and deal with it appropriately. I mean, the big question, obviously, for the industry is, is the net effect of all of this to send a big, you are not welcome here message to young, smart, technical women who want to or might see themselves as information security professionals? I would like to think that the fact that the infosec industry, especially the conference industry, is starting to step up and see that this is an issue. It is a systemic problem that needs to be dealt with. Just because... The guy standing next to me has never seen the guy on the other side of me grope somebody. doesn't mean that he hasn't, right? And now people are starting to realize that, especially with, Mar- with Morgan. It's like, oh, my God, he was such a great guy. I never would have thought. Oh, my God. But, you know, all these women are saying this. It must be true. And he has admitted it himself. So I think a lot of people are waking up to that fact. And hopefully that will make women feel more comfortable coming to these conferences, understanding that a lot of the conferences are organized by women. There may be a man standing in front of the podium saying, hey, welcome to my conference. But a lot of them are being organized by the wives and the girlfriends and a few very meticulously 
minded women in the background. Yeah. And those women are fully aware of all this, what's going on with the assault right now and the coming out on that. And they're trying to make these conferences safer places for everybody, but especially for women. What do you think needs to change? I mean, aside from the sort of incremental changes that have already happened, uh, is there some larger shift or change that, that might really make a difference? Sure. I'd love to see conferences share blacklists, right? If DEF CON has a list of people they've had to 86 over the years for this reason and that reason, I'd love for them to be able to share that. But then there, there are legalities involved in there. It could lead to allegations of libel because I'm giving you a printed list of all these people that have done these things wrong at my conference, but that means I'm not giving them a second chance because maybe they yep. cleaned up their act. It, it's, it's really touchy, and I honestly think that we need to find a way to get some of the conference organizers to have a conference organizers conference and maybe have some lawyers in the room and, and discuss these things to find out if there's a way that we can do this more efficiently without the possibility of legal ramifications down the road because we accidentally did it wrong. I mean, one of the challenges here for all of these incidents is that, you know, many of them, even if they rise to the level of criminal assault, you know, people are reluctant to go there, including the the victims of these. You know, they don't want to get involved or, you know, they, they're, they're trying to move on. So the police are not called and, you know, reports aren't filed. And so these these incidents just kind of go on and on for years and years without any official action being taken. I wonder, is that does that need to change? You know, do, do they need to start just having a zero tolerance policy and and saying, well, if this is what you say happens, then we're going to call the police down and treat this like, you know, an assault? Well, and that's what we have to do, honestly, that legally, if you make a complaint and you want more than us to, just to tell that person to back off, you need to be willing to call the cops and, and file a report. And if you're not willing to do that, we can't take it any further because then it's just an allegation. There's no charges involved. Um, but yes, it, it, one of the biggest parts, I, problems I feel is when some, a victim does make a report, you're victimized over and over and over again in the process of giving that report, in the process of collecting yes. the data to... Yeah, so it's very difficult for victims to be able to make that first step, that hurdle to say, okay, I'm going to put myself through this process in order to bring this to a legal conclusion, as opposed to just saying, I'm just going to brush this under the rug, and I'm just going to tell my friends, avoid that guy or girl, what, what have you, you know, avoid that person because they're bad news, but I don't want to go to the law with it because I'm going to get raked over the coals 50 times worse than the perpetrator will in right. the process of trying to determine their innocence or guilt. I've heard articulated as well, often there's fear that, you know, this perpetrator is a highly talented information security professional, maybe with some kind of offensive capabilities. I don't want to challenge or aggravate him because he may try and retaliate against me by hacking me or trolling me or, you know, uh, exposing, you know, sensitive personal information on me or what have you. Again, that's another reason why so many victims don't come forward is because they're afraid of that sort of retaliation as well. Unless you have a really strong crew backing you up that you know will have your back if something does get dropped on you, whether it's true or not, 
um, especially if it's not true, unless you have a crew backing you up saying, hey, that's a lie and I can prove it, because you can't speak up for yourself, right? It's always been one of the biggest problems is I can have five people conspiring to say something about me, but if it's just my voice against theirs, who's, who's going to be believed? It's funny. I mean, the information security is such a dispersed and diffuse thing. It's global. You know, again, most of these people are interacting, you know, 95 percent of the time online, not face to face. The cons like B-Sides and DEFCON and ShmooCon and DerbyCon, you know, kind of become the community in some ways. It's it's where the community comes together. Where do you see things going? Um, you talked about maybe more coordination amongst the cons or collaborative efforts to address this. Uh, well, I, I think that if we can find a way to do that, that would be excellent. Attrition, Security Errata has started a shame page to offset their charlatan page. And so far that shame page has three people on it, two of whom we've been speaking about this afternoon. Um, but if you have information with corroborating evidence against an individual, um, you can send it to attrition, Jericho at attrition.org, and he will do as much research as he can to determine whether or not that person belongs up on the shame page and that would be a good place. I, mean, I think that would be an excellent resource. He's always been very, very good at making sure that he does as much research as possible. He's not going to throw somebody up there just because he heard one or two stories. Yeah. Do you think there are more, Genevieve? I mean, there are three names on there now. Do you think there are more? I, I know there are. I know of several myself that I can't say anything about publicly because the victims themselves aren't willing to say anything. I absolutely know of, of more perpetrators of, of abuse in the, in the industry, but I can't say anything because it's not my place. The, the victims have to come forward first, and they have to be willing to stand up and say something in order for, for that to go forward. Are things getting better? I think so. Yeah, and, and we'll see. I mean, Me Too just broke not that long ago, and I think that was a catalyst for a lot of this push. I think that people are starting to wake up. And I hate to say this because it, it seems like it should be non-consequential to the conversation, but a, a lot of the younger hackers are growing up and becoming fathers and they're seeing their daughters and they don't want to see their daughters treated that way. So that's waking them up. Well, that should never have had to be a factor because they already have mothers and sisters and aunts and other women in their lives. But we're getting older. We're starting to get a little wiser. And yes, the hacker scene has always been a wild west of nonconformity and anarchy. So there's always going to be pushback. There's always going to be those people saying, I'll never go to a conference that has a code of conduct. And that's fine. I mean, do what you're going to do. Um, I'm what? sure there's conferences out there for you that are wild west and you can have all the fun in the world. But we want our conference. I want the conferences I attend to be not safe spaces in, in that technical term of the right, word, but right. right. You know, I want to be able to feel comfortable there. I want to know that if, if somebody gropes me at the bar, I can turn around and find somebody in a red shirt who's going to listen to what I say and address the person who groped me and not tell me that I'm overreacting or, you know, I should just go to a different room and ignore them the rest of the conference. Because what's that going to do? That's just going to leave them there to grope somebody else. Have you had that happen to you? Have you had bad encounters? Oh, I've been groped plenty of time. Absolutely. I mean, it goes with the territory of hanging out with people who are uh, 
for lack of a better term, sometimes socially inept. Yeah. Um, but no, I, like I said, I'm a strong woman. I can turn around and say, hey, you shouldn't do that. Here's why you shouldn't do that. And don't let me catch you doing it to anybody else. Or if it's been, you know, I've given them a warning and they've taken a second stab at it. Like I said, I'll put them on the ground and call for, you know, call for security to come over and deal with them and tell them what happened. And normally they see some guy laying on the ground writhing in pain because I almost just broke his wrist putting him down. And security takes me pretty seriously. But they've also known me for over 20 years, right? So I have that going for me too. And a lot of new women coming into the scene don't have that. So having other women around who have been in the scene for a while, in the industry for a while, as mentors or friends, uh, can help them a lot feel comfortable, help them feel a lot more comfortable in new situations until they understand how the dynamic works for themselves. Did, I mean, did having those experiences change your feelings about the industry and about the people you were at these conferences with? No. No, actually it didn't because I get that anyway. I get it walking down the street in San Francisco. I got it in high school in New Jersey. It didn't, doesn't matter. It's systemic. It's not industry specific. Yeah. It doesn't matter where I go. I'm going to be getting other human beings who don't understand boundaries who are going to step out of line, and I either get to put them back in line, push it off and try to shove it under the rug and then deal with the trauma of that later, or bring it to the attention of the powers that be at that particular venue and make sure that it's you know, at least try to deal with it to the best of my ability. But no, it's never turned me off from attending because it, it's it's systemic. If if I if it, that turned me off from attending a conference, I'd never go out of the house. Yeah. And you can't live your life like that. Okay, what's your advice to young women out there or middle-aged women or, or what have you who are, have the chops, have the desire, want to come check out a B-Sides or another uh, security conference? Sure. I'd say my first, Advice would be find a local conference, find a B-Sides that's in your town, because they're all over the world. There, there's at least one in almost every state, except for maybe Alaska. Um, there's one in almost every country at this point, except for maybe Antarctica, or on every continent, at least, except for Antarctica. Uh, find a local B-Sides, and you'll probably feel much more comfortable dipping your toes in the pool there, because they're much smaller than they normally average, maybe 50 to 200 people. So it's a good size for you to get a feel for your local community. Make friends there. Find people there that may be traveling to the larger conferences that, you, that you've now made friendships with. So you have a buddy system when you get to those larger conferences. Or if, when you get to one of those larger conferences, um, if you did go solo, try, try to make friends immediately. You know, Try to find somebody who you think that you can hang out with or at least feel comfortable enough around that if something were to happen, you could call them or text them, and they'd, they'd help you through the next steps. Because anytime you're dealing with a situation where you feel like you've been violated, it's hard to do unless there's somebody standing there with you to help you through it. Somebody that's not involved with the conference, right? Like a mediator type person. I appreciate the, the chance to come on and talk about this, because it is a very delicate but very timely subject, especially right now. And, uh, of course, I absolutely want to want all women and young girls well not young girls i don't think conferences are appropriate for too many yeah. children children no but you know, but, you know I, I want people that are interested in the industry no matter what their identity or gender to 
feel comfortable coming to these conferences and know they're places to learn. And that learns about that means learning about human nature too, right? And in personality types. And it's not just learning about the hacking. Yeah. Learning about how to interact. So I want everybody to feel comfortable coming and, you know, find find a friend and make it a make it a vacation trip and go in with an open mind. But understand that, you know, if something does happen, there are staff there to help you and use those utilities. You know, don't don't just sweep it under the rug and walk away and not say anything except for to the whisper network because that's not going to help anybody down the line. and It's not going to stop that person from assaulting somebody else. Yeah, I think that's a message that, that's come through loud and clear through all these incidents that have been in the media is, you know, the the need, you know, that th- these these folks who are doing this, are doing it serially often, and that by not exposing them in some ways, it just allows them to go on and harm somebody else. Yeah. And that's the biggest problem, is the reporting. It be, having, being able to find your own voice and to say something out loud is the hardest part of any time that somebody's been assaulted. Genevieve Southwick, CEO of B-Sides Las Vegas and B-Sides Denver, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It was great having you. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Up next, as governments around the world contemplate stricter monitoring and control of their citizens' online activity, more and more Internet users are being pushed towards anonymity tools like The Onion Router or Tor. Facebook and The New York Times are just two of the prominent media sites that have created separate Onion versions of their content just for the Tor network that allow Tor users to access their sites directly without traversing the public internet. In this week's podcast, we speak with Alec Muffet, a researcher who works extensively to democratize Tor. Most recently, Muffet helped port Wikipedia, the crowdsourced encyclopedia, to Tor as a proof of concept. In this interview, he tells us about that project and why it's not going to stick around for too long, and says that modifying applications to run over Tor is easier than you might think. Hi, my name is Alec Muffet. I'm a security geek of longstanding and work on all kinds of open source and Tor related stuff. I was working for Facebook for three and a bit years. Uh, that time was awesome. And, and one of the things, because I've got friends in the Tor community, one of the things that particularly exercised me, particularly interested me, was the people who connect to Facebook over Tor. And nobody inside Facebook had previously considered them as a um, thing to be measured. Instead, it was more of a a nuisance because a lot of bad behavior uh, arrived on Facebook's doorstep through Tor. Um, And this led to Facebook's automatic security mechanisms and uh, protections sort of slamming the door shut upon people who were connecting to Facebook over Tor. This happened quite frequently, and it generally led to bad press because Facebook is used by a lot of people uh, in countries around the world where network access is filtered or is restricted or sometimes banned because of some political. So Facebook was kind of looking at it and saying, if you're connecting by Tor, you are inherently uh, suspicious slash malicious, and we're just going to disconnect you just because of the method by which you are accessing our service. 
Exactly so. And no one had actually delved into the matter of who was doing this, why, how often, and how much of it was legitimate traffic. And so I ran a thumbnail sketch of how many people, a basic analysis of how many people were connecting to Facebook over Tor, and came up with a number far larger than we were previously sort of imagining in in the order of 450 to 500,000. And that's independent people. And then the next question was, you know, were these people... Bad people or good people, just to be very glib about it. Um, and so we took a little sample and sort of said, of this sample, uh, are these people doing normal stuff or are they evil uh, drug czars trying to sell guns to terrorists? And from the sample, the overwhelming majority were, were people we had no degree of sketchiness, no weirdness whatsoever. They were just perfectly normal. And so it just seemed like we've got 450 to 500,000 people and the vast majority of do, are doing normal things. Therefore, to get in their way seems regressive. It doesn't seem to be the it's not helping anybody. It's just hindering them. So why don't we make some affordance for them? Why don't we try and make things better? And that led to eventually a project to put Facebook onto an onion address and give it an address so that people who use Tor to connect to Facebook would connect without any intermediaries and without going through an exit node, which could put them at risk from, well, typically white hat security researchers, actually. Um, instead, they would be able to talk directly through uh, Tor and directly into Facebook, straight into one of the data centers with no intermediaries. It was end-to-end -end connections, but done for browsers rather than for phones with messenger apps. So this begets the next question, which is describe for us kind of what Tor, the Onion Router, is, and I guess what it means to access Facebook via Tor versus having a Tor version of Facebook and kind of what is involved in creating a Tor version of Facebook or, as you did more recently, Wikipedia. To describe Tor is one, usually one of those tasks which requires a whiteboard or, or some sort of graphic imagery. To do it in words is hard, but I'll give it a go. Um, you use a special browser, and that special browser plugs into a cloud of other computers out there on the internet. And this cloud is run largely by volunteers. Um, some of them are funded volunteers, but other people are doing it out of the generosity of their own heart. Um, and when you make a connection to a remote site like, um, I'll say, Google rather than Facebook so that we're sort of disambiguating it. Uh, if you're connecting to Google over Tor, what happens is your browser reaches out into that cloud, selects three machines at random and sort of bounces around between them, um, creating a VPN style circuit. Uh, and then when it gets to the third machine, um, so bounces off machine A, machine B, machine C, gets to machine C, that is the one that then goes on and connects to Google. Uh, the benefits of doing this, well, there's a bunch of them, but largely it's you can't be so easily surveilled, you can't be so easily blocked. Your initial connection has gone to machine A, which you picked yourself and which could be anywhere in the world. Um, where the traffic goes from machine A to machine B is out, you know, it's within your control to some extent, but it's not something which is going to be uh, easily blockable either by whoever's administering machine A. Someone in between machine A and machine B won't necessarily be able to firewall them. It's, you know, it's, it, it adds an element of unpredictability to the flow of the traffic. And so onwards to machine C. 
It's called the onion router. These are, you can think about it as kind of layers of the onion, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the VPN. The VPN style connection is sort of laid uh, laid out um, concentrically. So you create a pipe to uh, A, and through that pipe that you have to A, you create another pipe to B, and then within the pipe from A to uh, from yourself to machine B, you then run a connect, further connection out to machine C. So they're nested in layers like an onion. The point about onion addresses, which is the sort of next, I'd call it an evolution. Uh, it's an extra feature of the Tor networking stack, is that a site can run this whole thing in reverse. It can advertise a cryptographic address uh, within the Tor cloud, having previously set up some of these little circuits into the middle of the Tor cloud, and a, a kind of rendezvous protocol occurs. So that as opposed to going from myself to A to B to C and then over to Google.com, instead I go from myself to A to B to C over to this cryptographic address, which is still within the Tor cloud. Um, this means that the connection that you make is from a cryptographic perspective, end-to-end -end secure and isn't blockable. It isn't subject to DNS blocking. It isn't subject to BGP hijacking, which could sort of redirect your traffic to the other side of the world where it could be sniffed by some security services or anything like that. It, it, it's a very robust and very assured connection from the client to the server. There's nothing anonymous about connecting to Facebook over Tor using the uh, Facebook Onion service. Because you are meant to be using your real name to log into Facebook, there is no anonymity there. What um, setting up a Onion address does for Facebook is adds assurance. It means that you are, are guaranteed you're talking to the real Facebook. You're doing so a little bit quicker than you would do via an exit node because exit nodes within the Tor cloud tend to be kind of congested, lots of people using them. Uh, so using an onion address makes things go more quickly and more smoothly. I see onion addressing not so much as an anonymity tool, so much as an alternative network stack. And I think it's fascinating from that perspective. We've grown up with an internet now the last, I suppose, 40 years, 45 years or something like that. Um, with so many insecure tools, which are just essentially lashed together. Uh, we've got DNS, which even today we have arguments about how can we trust DNS when it goes in clear over the network, when it's so easily blockable yeah. by or, or editable or controllable by third party or central or government authorities. There's no trust in that architecture other than the trust we can get out of the institutions we use to manage DNS. Almost by accident, the, the Tor Onion networking stack has an integrated name lookup service, which is the cryptographic hashes of the Onion addresses you use. It provides end-to-end -end encryption. Y you are certain of to whom you're communicating uh, because of the nature of the cryptographic Tor addresses. So that's like um, what we had to later reinvent with IPsec with authentication headers and encapsulated security. Uh, so all these features that we later bolted on to IP, uh, a name lookup service, uh, a way of doing sort of bulk routing and stuff around the world, um, a, a way of being absolutely sure to whom you're speaking and that it's the address that you expect it to be. All of these things come for free for within the Tor stack. 
so if one treats it not as an anonymity tool, but as an alternative and parallel network stack with a bunch of interesting opportunities. Uh, my former career was as an enterprise architect with Sun Microsystems. You could use this for so many things. It's a cheap trust infrastructure for shif shifting around modest amounts, even large amounts of data, and uh, bootstrap other forms of trust on top of it. Um, I think this is a fantastic thing. From an engineering standpoint, how heavy a lift is it to um, move to uh, this alternative networking stack? Great question again, and it depends a little bit on what's at layer seven. And because it is treatable as anything, I think pretty much anything that runs over TCP can run over an uh, onion address. The presentation of Tor to other applications, you know, if, if we go through the ISO seven layer model, so I suppose uh, at about layer six or layer five, we're starting to talk about the presentation of the network stack to the applications that use it. Um, Tor presents as a SOX 5 relay. So anything that can talk to SOX can talk to Tor uh, and have benefit of the Tor addressing and the extra security and so forth. If you're using SSH, you can do it trivially. All you have to do is poke your SSH config and you can talk to a machine that you've set up over SSH over Tor quite transparently. If you've set up a website like Facebook or the New York Times, you've got a lot of URLs which are in the DNS namespace, nytimes.com, for instance, all of the, the DNS lookupable names, so to speak. If you want to translate that over to being an Onion site, you need some shim, which auto-translates between nytimes.com and the equivalent Onion address for nytimes.com. Um, so what I've been working on the last few months is that shim, the thing that would do bidirectional on-the-fly translation between the DNS namespace for HTML versus the Onion namespace for HTML. Is that the Enterprise Onion Toolkit? Yes. Very boring name, but on the other hand, it's a very boring piece of code aimed at enterprises for building onions. So... Hence. It's the it's the EOTK. I'm a little disappointed you weren't able to find a way to have the acronym be Ewok, but you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. there's oh, only so much you can do, Alec. Uh, also, the the, the, the Tor um, development community is full of uh, pieces of software with onion jokes about scallion and garlic and chutney and heaven knows yes. what else. Yes, and so I I just thought let's go go back to my corporate heritage here and say this is a tool fit toolkit for creating onions for enterprises. Therefore, it is the enterprise onion toolkit. We're used to in the media, and I'm in the media to talking and thinking about Tor primarily as an anonymity tool. You make an argument that it's it's really just a a platform that has advantages in and of itself. I guess what is the business case for doing this? If if these ideas survive or and thrive largely because there's a there's a strong business case for them uh, what is it in this case i think the commonality that i've seen in facebook and in the new york times and in other uh, organizations that are experimenting with this uh, is they uh, deal in communications between people uh, for instance the readership but also social networks and where Trust and authenticity and guarantees of the ability to communicate are essential. 
so if you've got an organization, if you have an enterprise where you have a readership around the world and there's a risk they might not be able to get to your content, um, or if you've got people who want to connect with each other around the world and there's a risk they might not be able to get at each other or use your services, adding an onion address makes it easy, makes it more frictionless to utilize Tor uh, efficiently. And you can guarantee as well that anyone who is using that onion address is definitely doing it over Tor over the right way. Um, what I mean by that is that uh, if you ha have some, if your service deals in sensitive information, for instance, one of the stories that was told about Tor during the conflicts in Afghanistan a few years ago was LGBTQ or pe people uh, in the army, in the American military, who were thinking about coming out as gay or lesbian or uh, trans and um, were worried about what their colleagues and senior officers would think. So this uh, using Tor gave them some privacy. Now, if you're building a resource for people uh, specifically uh, an audience like that, and you want to be certain that they are going to use a sensible tool, a tool like Tor to maintain their privacy and their discretion uh, when accessing the website. If you advertise the onion address, you know that they're going to be doing that. If you just advertise a normal web address, uh, something.com, they might be using Internet Explorer or whatever in order to access your website and thereby risk bad operational security and leaks and exposure and so forth. Is it a way to get governments out of the surveillance business or at least the Internet surveillance business? Or does it merely push the problem of surveillance to a, to another place? I think probably closer, to be practical, probably towards the latter. This is something that we have seen in uh, the stories about the FBI and iPhones, uh, where they're saying, you know, end-to-end -end, uh, encryption in iMessage, uh, or likewise in WhatsApp, uh, is supposed to be defeating uh, interception of messages and communications. What actually happens then is that they just pop the handsets. They break into deploy some toolkits right. or whatever to break in either after the fact or to remote access Trojan them whilst the machines are live. So it, it, it's just sort of shifting the burden of hackery pokery when it comes to surveillance. And maybe raising the bar a little bit. Surveillance is not default. Surveillance, or it should not be default. It shouldn't be the thing which we should be optimizing for. We should be optimizing for security and trust and assurance. And, and the ability to surveil can come after that because you can always pop the handset, you can pop the laptop, you can do things there. So I think there's a greater benefit to all of mankind from more security for everyone. Uh, so that everyone is, I think it's on my Twitter strapline, everyone deserves good security. Um, we can deal with the edge cases of bad people and bad actors doing bad things later. Uh, instead, the, the security itself is one of those metaphorical rising tides that lift all boats. Uh, Motherboard wrote about an experiment you did migrating Wikipedia to uh, an Onion service. Talk a little bit about that experiment and also what else, what other experiments might be on Alex's work desk. The Wikipedia experiment is just a proof of concept. It's only going to last a few days. It's up there primarily to demonstrate that 
even a website with such complicated, such complex uh, content as Wikipedia can be onionified through the simple process of doing this brute force rewriting of HTML from uh, DNS names over to onion addresses and onion names. Um, it's mostly there to sort of demonstrate to the Wikipedia community as a whole that, you know, maybe this is a thing which should happen. It's been discussed uh, in Wikipedia, Wikimedia communities for several years, whether they should um, support better folk who want to access and edit Wikipedia over Tor. And there are many um, internal discussions about whether this will lead to vandalism, whether it will lead to people deleting articles, uh, trolling, that kind of bad behavior, uh, which did apparently happen quite a lot uh, over tour to Wikipedia in the early days. This, I think, left a bad taste in people's mouths um, several years ago. But we've moved on since then. Wikipedia has advanced technologically and is much better at uh, dealing with vandalism from random IP addresses, let alone Tor. So it's possibly worthwhile giving it a go. And I just wanted to demonstrate that the technology is here to support the actual deployment of such a thing as a Onion version of Wikipedia. Um, the issues which need to be addressed are more whether they would like to do it and whether they feel that they can rise to the challenge of potential vandalism in the same way that they address it for the rest of the internet. It certainly isn't, shouldn't be considered as a technological choke point. Uh, there's nothing to actually inhibit them from doing it. Do you think that's moved the conversation forward? In other words, do you think that there's more likelihood now that there will be a Onion service uh, version of Wikipedia as a result of your proof of concept? I think there's um, a change in texture of the discussion. It's no longer people uh, arguing whether this thing is possible and chipping in various parts of quite often misinformed or out-of-date folklore about how Tor works. Uh, and now it's, oh, there's this thing, you can click on it, it actually looks like the real Wikipedia, it seems to work. Hey, you can stream video, it's a bit blocky, but it works pretty good. Um, maybe we should talk about doing it this way, or indeed roll our own by doing it some entirely different way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't have any stake in anyone using my technology. It's not like I'm getting paid for this or anything like this. It's all pro bono. Um, so if they'd like to roll their own Onion site, that would be fantastic. But at least people get a chance to play with it and poke it and see that it works and it's not too crazy and it's not too slow and all the other stuff. All those questions can be put to bed. And at some point in the next few days, I'll take it down because it doesn't need to persist much longer. It would be much nicer if they rolled their own if, or if they deployed their own uh, within their own trust boundary. And so that it was something that people could actually have assurance was the genuine article owned by Wikipedia themselves. But, uh, you know, that's a decision for them, not for me. OK, Alec Muffet, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. I really appreciated having you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. And thanks for your good work. Excellent. Thank you. And finally, it's been a little more than a year since the Mirai botnet caught the world's attention, first of all, by cobbling together internet-connected cameras into a botnet, and then by launching some of the largest denial-of-service attacks the world has seen. We speak this week with Martin McKay, a researcher and senior editor of Akamai's State of the Internet Security Report, which came out last week and which provides an update on botnet activity and other internet attacks. 
I started by asking McKay to talk about whether the pace of massive denial of service attacks we saw with Mirai has subsided. Joining me now on the Security Ledger podcast, we have Martin McKay of Akamai. Martin, welcome. Thank you for having me today. So if we're to roll the clock back a year from today, we were all thinking and talking about the Mirai botnet. Uh, that was a botnet made up of um, you know, IP cameras and digital video recorders and the like. And we saw some massive denial of service attached attacks emanating from that botnet. We haven't seen uh, similar attacks of that magnitude in the last year, but I wonder what your thoughts are on you know, whether there are more huge attacks out there waiting in the future or whether, you know, maybe that's going to be an outlier uh, incident. What we've seen in the last year is Mirai has not gone away. Mirai instead has metastasized from a single botnet or, or a small group of botnets that were taking advantage of an untapped resource, in other words, IoT, um, and now is a a lot of splintered smaller botnet that are all being used. And part of that change has been that Mirai is now more used to feed pay-for-play DDoS. In other words, rent a botnet. So we're seeing Mirai on an almost daily basis in some of the attacks we see. Uh, so it hasn't gone away. The, the fact is that IoT itself as a technology is not getting more secure. The, we, we think that there's going to be I've heard numbers anywhere from 50 to 100 million uh, devices out there by 2020. Um, and so it's actually ramping up the capability. Uh, we've seen fragmentation of the, the capabilities over time, which is why we see more small attacks now. But if somebody finds a particular brand, a very popular device, if somebody really goes and tries to capture a large portion of the IoT devices out there, we will see huge attacks. I mean, we're expecting that that terabit size attacks will be common, if not common as in a daily occurrence, but common as we won't go a month by without seeing one in the not too distant future. It's kind of scary because at that level, you're talking about an attack that's big enough to take down a region. The hosting service in, uh, in Europe, OVH, uh, French company, um, they were seeing so much traffic that they took down a large portion of France during that time. We've seen dying attacks that, where it had a, a knock-on effect because of DNS. When you start getting past the 500, 600 gig attacks into the terabit size scale attacks, it's going to be a problem because the very network of much of the internet cannot handle that size of an attack in a specific region. Akamai puts out this report on a pretty regular basis. So one of the main findings of this, the Q3 2017 State of the Internet Security Report, was that there's been a big uptick in web application attacks, uh, even from this time last year. I think you saw a 69% increase over the third quarter of 2016. Talk about that and maybe what explains it. Well, you know, SQL injection attack has been 50% or give or take a few percent of all of the attacks we've seen for uh, over, I think, two years now. It's being used because it's a successful uh, type of attack. We all know the OWASP top 10 has been showing the, the SQL injection attacks as being uh, a big problem for years. And the bad guys know it just as well as we do. They know that SQL injection works. The other part of it is, is that 
we see that it gets lost in the noise. There's so much of it that people are just trying to deal with on a daily basis that it's a low-risk attack. I mean, you are throwing out traffic, you're throwing out attempts to get into a system, and it's really easy with very low risk as an attacker to scan hundreds of thousands of systems um, and look for one that happens to be uh, uh, vulnerable to what you want to do and what you're trying to do. So why not? I mean, as an attacker, you're looking at that and just going, "I'm nobody's going to track me down for SQL injection attacks, so why shouldn't I be putting out thousands of them on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, SQL has been, I think, at the top of the OWASP top 10 list of web application security vulnerabilities for almost since its inception, but is still a problem that is unaddressed or at least not addressed adequately. What accounts for that? And I guess, how do we finally win the game of whack-a-mole that is uh, getting rid of SQL injection vulnerabilities? Well, I mean, that's that's what DevOps and, and security ops has been about for the last few years of, of trying to build into the creation process for software uh, a step that that looks at that, trying to educate the programmers about why they shouldn't be doing certain security practices or certain programming practices that lead to SQL injection capability. There are a number of band-aids. I mean, web application firewalls are, are a stopgap measure for all of the software that's out there already. Uh, obviously, that's part of what we do. But then you have folks like Veracode and other companies that are looking at helping understand the code, helping look for that type of injection attack and other vulnerabilities in the code before it goes live. And, but we have to continue to build, push that back in the stack so that the tools that are even being used by the, the DevOps folks, uh, by the security ops folks, are taking into account SQL injection from the very get-go and make it harder to actually include that type of attack or, or that type of vulnerability, I should say, in the base code itself. I mean, is what we're seeing the legacy of legacy code, I guess. Just there's tons of application code out there that was written without much attention to security. But maybe going forward, uh, we'll see fewer of these SQL injection vulnerabilities, at least in newly developed applications. Or is it just a endemic problem, new application, old application code, doesn't much matter? I think that it is new application code, old application code, it doesn't much matter, but it's getting better. People are becoming more aware. So as newer code comes out, yes, there's going to be less of it, but that's that's a, a incremental change we're going to see over years, not something that we're going to see a major change in the next six months or a year. You know, we just got past Cyber Monday. As e-commerce grows, are we seeing more interest or more activity around extortion and, and denial of service used as a way to um, kind of cripple companies? Or is this um, you know pretty much independent of the growth in e-commerce? No, it's not at all independent. I mean, we are definitely seeing a, a growth in the extortion racket with DDoS as one of the primary tools. But you've got to remember when that falls into two, actually three primary categories, that extortion. You have people that send out an email or a letter to a, a CFO or a CSO saying, pay us or else we're going to DDoS you. And they never do anything. They have no capabilities. They're just sending out a, a letter hoping that one out of 100 of their targets will pay. And that's enough for them to earn some money off of, off of the attempt. 
Then you have a number of folks who are are using the Mirai DDoS uh, capabilities or using other uh, pay-for-play DDoS capabilities, and they will rent a botnet for 10 minutes and do an attack and show that they have some sort of capabilities. But when it really comes down to a long-term concrete attack, they don't have the capabilities to do it. They can't afford to rent a botnet for a long term. So they'll they'll go away and disappear if, if you don't pay them. And then there's a very, very small number of these folks that actually do have the capability um, and that do uh, will follow through on an extortion. I haven't seen too many of those in, in recent months, but there are, there are some out there. Uh, when you look, as you mentioned, billions of dollars of e-commerce being done, uh, I know from, from previous life that there are a lot of merchants that make 25 to 50% of their entire year's numbers uh, in this last couple months or last couple weeks, I mean, of the year. And to them, if they lose 10 minutes because somebody was DDoSing them, that can blow their entire year. Even if it's if it's just something where the DDoS is not enough to take them offline, but instead it can slow that slow them down, slow the, the click-through rate for their customers down just a few milliseconds. Um, it can still have a bottom uh, an effect on the bottom line and really make it painful for them. You know, we've been reading a lot about countries like North Korea that seem to straddle the sort of APT actor, nation state actor, and the cyber criminal actor as well. Um, we generally think of denial of service as a tool in the tool belt of cyber criminals uh, or or hacktivists. Any evidence to suggest that it's also in the nation state tool belt and um, something that we might see more activity that uh, seem to be government linked rather than cyber criminal? More so even than other sorts of compromise, a DDoS attack is hard to attribute to a specific actor or a nation state, especially if somebody's making an attempt to to cloak themselves from discovery. Um, you can use things like reflection attacks, so a, a, a mm -hmm. DNS reflection, to make it so that it's hard to tell who did it. That being said, anecdotally, from some of the conversations we have with people, yes, it does appear that the nation-state actors are using DDoS as a tool. They're using it in, in their arsenal. Um, more so against... Um, activists in their own countries and things like that to take down the sites to prevent them from getting online. Right. Um, it's it's just a, another tool and another way of silencing that voice of dissent. So we hear, you know, in, in your report and others, this country or that country was the source of uh, most DDoS activity. Or, it seems to fluctuate from quarter to quarter, year to year. Is there any rhyme or reason really to where these attacks are emanating from? And is this a problem that you can really address at the country by country level? Or is it more opportunistic? It's not something that is particular to a particular country or region. One of the things that we've done in the past is actually look at the number of IP addresses in ASNs and countries versus the amount of attack traffic. Um, and that's where it starts getting, you, you, it starts showing something because when you look at the US, we have the most ISP is in the most ASNs and the most IP addresses that are out there. So it's natural that we would be one of the highest sources of attack traffic, whether it's DDoS or um, 
application. You same with China, same with with Russia. But then you get someplace like Brazil, and Brazil doesn't have nearly the amount of IPs and the amount of traffic coming out of it that uh, that a, a larger country does. But the percentage of bad traffic coming out of that country is much much higher than almost any of the other countries that we looked at. Um, so when you're looking at something like the U.S. Or, or even some of the ASNs in China, you're looking at a fraction of a percent where uh, of all traffic that's coming out of that country is malicious uh, or, or actually um, reflective. Um, when you look at someplace like Brazil, a much larger portion, I think uh, it was somewhere around 1.7% of that traffic is malicious. So showing that it's, it's actually a much bigger problem in those countries than in some others. I think that one of the biggest problems that we have out there is going to be IoT, is the Internet of Things, because it's where we were with SQL injection attacks 10 years ago. We knew they were a problem, but nobody was doing anything, but then they started doing stuff. So it's still getting worse, but it shows signs of improvement. IoT is in the very beginning stages. It's not something most manufacturers are even looking at as being a, a concern. Security to IoT is, is why bother? Um, so we're going to have to start getting manufacturers to be concerned with, with security and IoT, and we're going to have to wait for some of the devices that are already out there to uh, age out of use. Um, so it's, it's going to show some of the same patterns of it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, and it's a real boil-the-ocean type problem. There are just so many different device makers, so the supply chains are long and complex. Um, it's really difficult to get your arms around it. It's, it's a huge problem and shouldn't be that new to anybody in security who's had to deal with uh, bring-your-own-device or any of the other various things that we've had to deal with over the last couple decades. Martin McKay, Senior Security Advocate and Senior Editor of Akamai's State of the Internet Security Report. Thank you so much for coming on the Security Ledger Podcast. We really enjoyed having you. Thank you very much for having me, Paul.